welcome back to the Geeks at the Gates. Quick apology before we get started. Uh, you are going to be listening to my whiny voice droning on again all episode because although we had planned to have done a proper geek meetup and recording session by now, we in fact have not. Uh, so we are going to get one more week of the audiobook. I hope you're enjoying it. And uh, we do have a recording session planned for next week as I record this. So next week's Geeks at the Gates will be back to normal, uh, insofar as anything we do is normal. Uh, before we get into it, though, a couple of things. If you have not seen Captain Marvel, you should probably give that a try. It's not the best Marvel movie I've ever seen. That is, however, quite a high bar. It is huge amounts of fun. Brie Larson is charming as all get out. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson is excellent value. Agent Coulson looks a little bit odd or young. Uh, and the cat's fantastic. Uh, so, you know, personal endorsement from me. I loved it. No idea what the other geeks thought, because at the time of recording, I don't think any of the rest of them have seen it yet. Also, just a heads up, Thought Bubble is still in November. It's still months away, but exciting things are already beginning to happen. Can't tell you what any of them are yet, but it is going to be awesome. So if you don't have your tickets sorted for that yet, you probably want to look to that too. Plan ahead, guys. It's important. Right, anyway, um, without further ado, a quick recap of what's happened in the story so far, and then we will get into it. Ellie struggled, but the hand over her mouth and the arm pinning her arms to her waist gripped like a vice. Keep still, damn it! I'm not here to hurt you. Right there, I'm the only person who'd get you out of this. Ellie thought for a moment. Suppose I trust you. There was a loud knock at the door. The man in the bowler hat held out his hand. Time's up, come in. The cadaverous man stood outside the door of the bathroom. He banged on the door again, his vision filled with purple, and he was thrown back down the white wall corridor. Ellie hit the ground hard enough for all the wind to be knocked out of her. Run! They were running down a grassy slope, zigzagging their way along at breakneck speed. The first explosion surprised her. The cadaverous man stared at his screen. The flash of purple had been blinding, and he couldn't tell whether the first explosion had caught the infidel or not. George Mannering had been a clerk for a long time. He crouched down next to the ragged crater which disfigured what had been pristine lawn. He knew that the traitor and the girl had either gone through that door or been vaporised in the explosion. He waited, and after a second he heard a familiar raspy voice in his ear. Can you follow? Mannering looked up at the glowing neon door. Mannering reached out and grabbed the brown leather Gladstone bag at his side and tapped his ear again. I'll bring him back in chains, or I'll bring back his corpse. With that, he took a step back, leapt high into the air, somersaulting through the neon green door, and he vanished. Ellie sat up properly and squinted painfully at her surroundings. Is this... is this a camper van? It's a 1967 Mark 1 VW camera. You live in this? I imagine you have some questions. I am a soldier of the Black Guard, dedicating to resisting the tyranny of the auditors and the maintenance of free will. We live in an infinite universe. Yes, if the universe is infinite, everything that can happen at any moment must happen somewhere. And it does. Infinite variations of everything that can happen are happening everywhere in the universe. Essentially, everything is happening in the same time at the same place. Ellie was going to ask another question when her attention was diverted by the unmistakable click of a cocking pistol. Hello, George. George Mannering scowled. Touristian. You betrayed all of us. You were our leader, and you betrayed everything we stood for. It really wasn't like that. I'm sorry, George. I really am. You, mate, are on the wrong side. You're going to die here. And the girl is coming back to the office, where she belonged. Any last words? Ellie shifted in her seat, trying to see if she could launch with a pistol. Tristian flashed her the briefest of holding glances. 
As it happens, he drawled. Yes. His raised hands flashed a wave. See ya! There was a blinding purple flash, and George Mannering found himself confused and alone in the middle of the forest. Shift. Chapter 5. Maneuvers. This time, Ellie didn't black out, although she definitely wished she had. One second, she'd been trying to look for an opportunity to disarm the pinstriped, pistol-wielding person standing in the doorway of the camper. The next, the world turned purple and started screaming. It seemed to last for hours. Eventually, Ellie bowed to the inevitable and joined in. George Mannering was furious. This was not at all unusual. Since the traitor had betrayed the office, condemning George and his colleagues to a lifetime of clerk status, George had been a perpetually angry man. But George Mannering was also completely lost. And that was unheard of. He might not have attained the dizzy heights of full order to status, but he was still a clerk. He always knew exactly where he was, and he always knew exactly what he should be doing. That certainty was the very essence of what being a clerk was all about. The unfamiliar feeling of uncertainty gave rise to another, even less welcome feeling. Fear. Clerks did not normally experience fear. Fear came from not knowing from uncertainty. Clerks were never uncertain. The fact that they were clerks meant that they always knew. George Mannering had no idea where he was. He'd pursued the traitor through the portal outside the office, but he hadn't taken him where he thought he was. He had no idea how the traitor had escaped. He'd been aware of the traitor's ability to use phase displacement to shift between realities without a portal, but he shouldn't have been able to take the girl on that ridiculous van with This was technology with which he was entirely unfamiliar, and for a clerk, that was intolerable. The rotund little man placed the pince-nez on his aquiline nose. They showed him nothing but the darkness of the forest. The portal... The fluorescent green lines that would guide him to any portal were gone. There was darkness, and there were trees. With a heavy sigh, George Mannering did the only thing he could. Choosing a direction at random, he picked up his Gladstone bag and trudged off through the endless forest. Ellie stopped screaming. She paused for a moment, then slowly she opened her eyes didn't seem to make any difference. Everything was purple, everything was silent, and everything was purple. Then, out of the darkness came the laugh. A chuckle at first, built into a rich, deep and uncontrolled guffaw. There was darkness in that laugh. Darkness and desperation and worse, an edge of insanity and cruelty. She was honest. It was a good deal more disturbing than the screams had been. The cadaverous man stared at the teak veneered console. The multitude of screens embedded there showed nothing but static. His face showed no emotion, it never did after all, but there was a tension in his demeanour that was unmistakable. He had always had great faith in George Mannering. Of course, after the incident with the traitor, it had been necessary to punish the rotund little clerk by halting his advancement, but he was good. Even with the traitor's black mark on his record, 
he'd certainly make full order to status. The man simply did not fail. And yet, that is what he seemed to be doing. The office had been receiving the live stream from Mannering's ocular implant. He'd successfully pursued the traitor and the girl through the portal, a portal that was uncharted and on the doorstep of the office, and which didn't seem to fit into the framework, if you please, cornered them, and been in a position to execute the traitor and bring the girl back into custody. For some reason, he had hesitated. The traitor had escaped, and the feed had gone dead. The cadaverous man rested his chin on his steepled fingers and gazed thoughtfully at the only readout that remained on the console. Mannering's life signs remained strong, but there was no indication of location. The man's telemetry implant should have been transmitting clear latitude, longitude and verisimilitude data. The chip was clearly still operational. Were it not, there would be no life sign information. But somehow, the useful data was being blocked, along with the visual feed from the ocular implant. That should have been impossible. Actually, no. No, there was no should about it. The cadaverous man was an auditor. He was the auditor. What was and what was not possible didn't come into it. Regardless of the actuality, across the whole of the infinite universe, he knew what was possible. He knew because that was his purpose, to know what was possible and to make sure that only the possible took place. He was, in effect, functionally omniscient. The constant stream of data from the clerks sort of that. But now, when it really mattered, there was a hole in his insight. For the first time in his long existence, he was not sure. It was an unfamiliar and entirely unwelcome feeling. With a deep scowl darkening his face, he turned on his heel and stalked out of the control room. The laughter subsided. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. The voice was breathless and still choked with mirth. I shouldn't laugh, but the look on his face was just too priceless. It was the voice of the bowler-hatted man, Viscount, whatever he called himself. Ellie swallowed and forced a calmness which she absolutely did not feel. Why can't I see? There was the almost audible sound of a man crippled by hilarity becoming very serious, very quickly. Damn! All trace of laughter was gone. Ellie felt lightly calloused hands gently gripping her temples and caught a whiff of what smelled like engine oil on his fingers. Even unsighted, she could sense the intensity of his gaze. Oh, I wish you'd kept those goggles on. His voice was rueful. I thought the van's windows might have been enough protection, but apparently not. Ellie felt her head being gently tipped back. Close your eyes as tight as you can, he intoned gently. Then, when I say, open them really wide. She felt his left hand move away from her face as he reached for something. She squeezed her eyes firmly shut and waited. OK, he said. This won't hurt a bit. Open your eyes as wide as you can. Ellie opened her eyes and then yelped as drops of what felt like molten lava splashed into each eye. She screwed both eyes shut and jerked her head away from the Viscount's grip, bringing both hands up to cover her seared eyeballs. What the... Did... Ellie's voice was shrill. You said that wouldn't hurt. There was a gentle chuckle. Actually, yeah, I said it wouldn't hurt a bit. I said nothing about it hurting a lot. 
Ellie felt something soft and cool being draped across her eyes. The stinging pain began to subside a little. Um, I'm just going to bandage your eyes up for a bit. His voice was gentle and businesslike as he tied the bandage to the back of the head. As he leaned in close, she caught another whiff of engine oil. Your eyes weren't properly protected when we shifted. Sorry, I should have been more careful. If you'd left the goggles on, you'd have been fine. Ellie was trying hard to keep the fear out of her voice, but she was struggling. Look, I've been kidnapped, locked up, mugged in the shower, fed full of tea and whatever nonsense you've been spouting in the middle of a forest, and now I'm blind. She gripped the edge of the seat. I'm not the hysterical type, Mr Viscount, whoever you are, but I am very, very close to losing my temper. I'm going to sit very still and very quiet, and you are going to tell me exactly what is happening, or, blind or not, I am going to do you some serious harm. There was a long pause. Absolutely. Blind as she was, she could hear the infuriating grin on her companion's face. Basically, you're blind, because when we shifted between realities, your eyes weren't adequately protected. Human eyes, well, eyes of any kind, in fact, simply aren't designed to see that. The gaps we travel through are like the, the ultimate in sensory deprivation. Without protection, your eyes just shut down. The damage can be permanent, but in your case, you were inside the van, so... With those drops, she should be fine in a few hours. Ellie nodded thoughtfully to herself. She still wasn't sure she really believed any of this stuff about shifting between realities, but she couldn't deny that she seemed to have moved inexplicably between locations. If she could accept teleportation, why not parallel realities? But still... Hang on. Her voice was thoughtful, but also laced with a tautness that betrayed the stress and irritation that she was trying so hard to control. You said that travelling through these gaps of yours was like sensory deprivation, and that makes the sensors shut down. Precisely so. But my hearing is fine. In fact, when we were travelling, I could hear screams. All my other sensors are fine. You're lying to me, and I'm getting sick of it. There was another long pause. <sighs> Sorry. Look, I'm... I'm trying to explain things in simple terms, and there really aren't any simple terms. The screams are... well, they're something I can't really explain to you now. In fact, you're right. I'm explaining all of this very badly. There was a long pause. Look, you're important. His voice was now earnest and determined. I can't properly explain it to you, but you're in danger and you need my help. There was an edge of steel in his voice now. I'm going to take you to my HQ. There are people there who can explain all of this better than I can. For now, just remember, I never kidnapped you. I got you away from the people who did. When you've had all of this explained, if you want me to, I'll take you home. You have my word. But for right now, you really do need to just shut up and trust me. Ellie didn't reply. She leaned back in her seats and heard her companion move into the cab of the van. There was no engine noise and no sense of movement. But after a second, even through her blindfold, she could see the purple, and she could certainly hear the screams. In the middle of a forest, 
in an uncharted actuality, George Mannering paused. He'd been trudging through the anonymous trees, looking for any kind of reference point for what felt like days. Hunger and thirst were gnawing at his guts, and he'd begun to despair of ever finding a way back to the office, let alone get back on the trail of his quarry. Given his previous disgrace after the defection of the traitor, he simply could not bear the thought of returning to the office without the girl and the traitor's head. But now there was something he could sense. He didn't know how he knew, but he could feel that the traitor and his ridiculous camper van were on the move. His personnel had not shown him anything since the traitor's escape, and he knew that trying them again was irrational. Even so, he placed the little lenses back on his nose. It was faint, but he could see a dim line of neon green. He smiled. Got you, you worthless cad. Taking the pistol from his Gladstone bag, George Mannering set out to find the portal that would lead him to his prey. In the operations room of the office, a discreet red light flashed on the teak veneered console. Most of the screen still displayed static, but the screen next to Clark Mannering's life sign display blinked back to life, showing a complicated graphic detailing his latitude, longitude and verisimilitude data. The clerk on duty wasted no time in hitting the intercom. My lord? What is it? The rasping voice was drenched with irritation. The clerk on duty gulped. We have re-established the location of Clark Mannering. He's in uncharted territory, but the fix is firm. Trackers are locked on. There was a long pause. Then the raspy voice of the cadaverous man filled the operations room. Excellent. Send instructions to a bailiff. I want him on standby. The clerk on duty confirmed his master's orders and conveyed them to the appropriate people. He smiled to himself as he worked. George Mannering was a legend among the junior clerks. His betrayal at the hands of the traitor was now taught as a cautionary tale at the academy. To the juniors, Mannering was a hero. The clerk on duty smiled to himself. If he could assist Clark Mannering in the apprehension of the traitor, he could scarcely imagine the glory, the potential for advancement. With a few deft twists of knobs and pulls of levers, Clark on duty began to send Clark Mannering's location to those who needed to know. In his sparsely furnished quarters, Duke Regimen Asquith of the Singularity gazed at his cadaverous features in the mirror and straightened his tie. The loss of the girl was a painful defeat, especially because the traitor had been able to penetrate the office and get her out. He was disturbed by the fact that this had happened and by the fact that communication with Clark Mannering had been lost. But things were back on track now. He tapped a complicated glyph onto the mirror that hung above his desk. The feed from Clark Mannering's ocular implant flickered into view. The Duke smiled. He'd thought they may have lost everything, but now, well, now they were back on the trail of the traitor, and he was pretty sure that the traitor didn't know. The victory of the auditors could well be at hand. Duke Regiment Asquith of the Singularity paused, brushed a fleck of lint from the shoulder of his immaculate pinstripe suit, and strode out of his quarters. A smile creased his grey, cadaverous face. As the lead auditor, he always knew what would transpire, and now he knew, beyond doubt, that the Blackguard Rebellion and the battle against the traitor were nearly over. You thought to challenge us, Viscount, he muttered to himself. 
Now you will reap the price of your presumption. The Duke strode down the corridor, darkness following behind him. Chapter 6 Free Flight The screaming and the purple subsided, to be replaced by regular blindfolded blackness and the throaty puttering of the campervan's engine. Ellie couldn't see, of course, but from the vibration and sense of motion she presumed that they were driving along a regular road. She sat in silence, partly because she had no real wish to bandy words with this so-called Viscount character, and partly because she was simply too tired to speak. Her black-clad companion seemed to understand this, or perhaps simply wasn't feeling chatty either, because he made no attempt at conversation. She tried to sleep, but somehow the solace of slumber would not come. After a drive of perhaps two hours, she heard the gentle tick-tock of the indicator, and then felt the van take a gentle corner and slow to a stop. A guiding hand on her elbow got her to her feet, and helped her negotiate her way out of the van's side door without breaking her neck. So, where are we now? There was resignation in her voice. Ellie was beyond fear and apprehension. She was too tired even to be irritated. Clearly she had no control over any of the things that were happening to her, so she reasoned that she might as well just go with the flow for him. Ah, oh, you just wait. You're going to absolutely love this. Her mysterious companion, Captain Saviour, replied in a voice that dripped with enthusiasm. Hang on, I just need to take your blindfold off, but your eyes probably aren't quite ready to see it unprotected yet. Uh, just close them for a second. Ellie did as she was asked, and felt the bandages unwind from around her face, then felt something like a pair of glasses slip onto her nose. These will give you a bit of protection until your eyes fully heal, okay? Hang on. Right. Open them and take a look. She cautiously opened her eyes and gasped. She stared slack-jawed at the spectacle before her, almost unable to grasp the immensity of it. Viscount Tristian took her arm again, his grin full of dazzling whiteness, and his eyes twinkling with joy. Camel, let me show you around. Still unable to fully grasp what she was looking at, Ellie allowed herself to be led away, gaping. George Mannering smiled to himself. The faint fluorescent green line leading him through the trackless forest was growing stronger, indicating that he was getting close to a portal. He still didn't know where he was, or where the traitor had gone, but he was confident that he'd be able to track him from the portal. Mannering pushed the pince-nez higher up his nose and trudged on, humming a jaunty little tune. Ellie's jaw was still pretty much on the ground, but she was beginning to pull herself together. Where are we? she demanded. And what the hell is that? Viscount Tristian was still grinning. We're just outside Doncaster at the Finningley Air Station, and that beauty... He motioned to the massive dirigible floating just above their heads. Is the good ship Fugilibero. She's one of our mobile operations bases, and you're seriously privileged to see her so close to the ground. Ellie stood very still and tried to take in what she was seeing. The Fuga Libero was huge. Easily a mile long, she was like a cylindrical black skyscraper hovering a few feet from the ground. Ellie and Tristian stood at the front end, which tapered to a blunt point and appeared to be glazed with black glass. 
A series of stubby winglets protruded all the way along her length, each one holding what appeared to be a jet engine. Far away, nearly at the other end of the tarmac runway, she could see that the back of the craft was similar to the front, but sported four large black fins, each one adorned with the image of a massive silver skull surrounded by a cogwheel. Hmm, sorry, this is Doncaster? Doncaster? South Yorkshire? The post-industrial wasteland, Doncaster? Ellie's voice was incredulous. She was a Sheffield girl and so had firm opinions on nearby Doncaster. The rivalry between the city of Sheffield and the historic market town was long-standing and deeply entrenched. How the hell is something like this? She motioned at the ink-black behemoth floating just above her head. Landing in... Doncaster without people noticing. The Viscount laughed again and walked backwards towards the massive craft, spreading his arms wide. I said we're at the Finningley Air Station outside Doncaster. He waved his hand behind him at the Fuga Libero. The Fuga here is one of the biggest, certainly, but this kind of craft comes in here all the time. It's pretty remarkable, really. What is there for people to notice? Ellie waved at the giant airship. What is there to notice? It's a bloody airship. She grabbed hold of the Viscount's shoulder and spun him around to look at the deep matte black flanks of the floating cylinder. It's a bloody airship that must be more than a mile long. Who the hell has airships anymore? Let alone airships that are longer than most streets. A brief flicker of puzzlement crossed the Viscount's face to be rapidly followed by realisation. Oh. oh, I'm sorry. He didn't look sorry in the slightest. I keep taking it for granted that you already know things. He placed her hand on Ellie's shoulder and fixed her gaze with eyes of cold grey steel. This isn't your reality. This is the reality where the Black God Rebellion is based. We're not too far from yours, so you'll notice many similarities, but a lot of differences. Dirigibles are one such. We do have every than air flight here, but all the heavy lifting is done by a craft like this. He waved a hand at the Fuga Libero by way of illustration. As he did so, he led her down the length of the craft, stopping at a hatchway which had folded downwards to provide a short flight of steps, the bottom of which rested less than half an inch above the asphalt of the runway. The Viscount paused at the bottom of the stairs and with a deep bow motioned to Ellie to climb aboard. Are you, my lady? Ellie shook her head slightly. Oh, what the hell, in for a penny? She muttered and cautiously ascended the steps into the mammoth aircraft. Before following her, the Viscount whistled to a young man clad in black overalls and threw a set of keys at him. Stick the bass in the hangar, will you, old lad? The young man waved assent and headed off in the direction of the camper van. The Viscount watched him go and then, with a wave and a cheerful, And mind the paintwork, there's a good chap, bounded up the steps into the belly of the floating beast. Duke Regiment Asquith of the Singularity smoothed the front of his black pinstripe suit as he strode back into the operations room of the office, his sandpaper voice resonating with confidence and command. Clark Mannering, report. There was the briefest crackle of static before a distant tinny voice came over the ops room speakers. My Lord Asquith, I am pleased to report that I have reached a portal. However... I regret that my investigations indicate that it is only capable of returning me to the office. The Duke nodded his cadaverous head gravely. 
I expected as much, he rasped. Have you ascertained any locational data? There was another pause, and this time it seemed to be caused not by communication difficulties, but by Mannering's unwillingness to answer the question. When he eventually spoke, Mannering's voice was tight with tension and frustration. I regret not, my lord. The Duke looked down at his console. The screen showing the feed from Mannering's telemetry chip displayed full latitude, longitude and verisimilitude data, his precise geographical coordinates and which reality he was in. It was odd that Mannering couldn't access the data from where he was. Very interesting, Mannering. We have a full fix on you here. You are in uncharted territory, but we know where you are, and that's clearly a link to the rebel territory. You've done well. If you are sure that the portal will return you to the office, please return with all haste and report directly to me. That is all. With a wave of his grey, corpse-like hand, the Duke severed the communication. Deep in a forest the office had never suspected might exist, Clark George Mannering smiled to himself, dropped his pistol back into his Gladstone bag, and vaulted through the portal. <laughs> Ellie found that she had to stoop as she made her way along the dimly lit, narrow corridor inside the craft. Why the hell is it so pokey in here? she demanded. This thing is bloody massive. The voice behind her was still infuriatingly amused. It's an airship. Rather a lot of the space is taken up by, well, air. Oh, and mind you, Ellie cursed as she hit her head on the ceiling. Head? Ellie rubbed her head and the laughing voice behind her continues. Now that is why I wear the bowler. Not only does it make me appear unspeakably dapper, it also protects me from all the bangs on the bonds you're bound to get if you spend your time crawling around these things. The passageway ended abruptly at a narrow ladder, which led up into the heart of the aircraft. Ellie paused and looked up. She couldn't see the top of the narrow tube that the ladder threaded its way through. We're going up. There was just a tinge of irritation behind the question. Absolutely. And don't worry, once we get through the outer air cavity, you'll find there's a lot more space to move around. Grudgingly, Ellie began to climb. The rungs of the ladder were thin, not even as thick as a pencil, and it wasn't long before they began to dig uncomfortably into her hands as she climbed. How high does this bloody thing go? She griped as she reached for the next painful rung. Ah, it's only about 60 feet, all told. The Viscount's voice below her was maddeningly cheerful and betrayed no evidence of fatigue. Ellie gave some serious, if brief, consideration to stamping on his fingers. I suppose, Ellie gasped as she pulled herself up one rung further. It never occurred to you to install a lift? This is lighter than air flight, Ellie. Lifts are heavy. The more infrastructure we install in these beasts, the less cargo and equipment we can carry. Huh. After what felt like hours, Ellie finally clambered out into a cool black wooden floor. She sat up to see the Viscount's bowler-hatted head appear behind her. He had his goggles strapped around his hat and the same half-amused smile on his pale face. Welcome aboard, he grinned as he vaulted out of the climbing tube and onto the floor. Straightening up, he looked around the panelled room and, finding it empty, gave a shout. Oi! Bango! Where's your manners? You're keeping the lady waiting. An ebony door at the far end of the chamber swung open, and a short, chubby, bespectacled man in his mid-fifties bustled in, ambling towards Ellie with an enthusiastically outstretched hand. Like the Viscount, he was garbed entirely in black. 
highly polished black brogues, black three-piece linen suit with a long jacket, black frames to his little round glasses, jet black hair, which Ellie suspected might be dyed. Even the watch chain hanging from his waistcoat pocket was black. Well, you must be the fulcrum. So pleased to meet you, my dear. So very pleased to meet you. He grasped Ellie's unresisting hand and shook it vigorously. I'm Sir Bunstrom of the County Marchers, a major in the Black Guard Rebellion, he enthused, still pumping Ellie's hand. But you can call me Bunko, everybody does. Uh, great, thanks. Ellie retrieved her hand and looked at Bunko's attire, then at Viscount Tristian, and then around the ebony-panelled room. You guys do understand the concept of colour, do you? Bunko ignored her and sidled up to Viscount Tristian. Tris, he whispered, why is she wearing sunglasses indoors? The Viscount grinned his infuriating grin and chuckled. Ellie, you can take the sunglasses off now. He motioned to Bunko. This is Bunko. He's flat, flatulent, and frankly a pain in the arse. But he's also the most loyal friend you could hope to have, and an absolute genius at various similitude shifting, tracking, and locating. I trust this sorry individual with my life, literally. And it can probably answer every question you have, and a good few you haven't thought of yet. He turned and started for a door at the other end of the chamber. I'll leave you in his capable hands for now. I have a few things I need to take care of. Reaching the door, he paused and turned back. Bunko? She didn't ask for any of this. She lived in monkey world all her life. She has no training and no idea what's going on. Be nice to her. And Ellie? Don't believe a word of it. Nobody but me calls him Bunko. Everyone else on board, everyone else on board, calls him either Sir or Your Excellency, depending on who they are. I tend to belittle people, Ellie. Don't be fooled by it, or by his manner. With the tip of his bowler hat, the Viscount stepped through the door and disappeared into the darkness beyond. Ellie and Bunko watched him go. Bunko spoke first. Gosh, he does go on, doesn't he? Ellie grinned, in spite of herself. I thought he'd never shut up. But seriously, I really am freaking out. Just a little bit. I've been kidnapped, imprisoned, attacked in the shower, blown up, threatened with a gun and blinded. If you could start to explain any of this... I'd be really grateful. But also, the Viscount. What is going on with that accent? <laughs> Bunko dipped his head in the smallest of nods and offered Ellie his arm. Walk this way, my dear, and I shall endeavour to explain everything. Cup of tea? The chubby little man led Ellie through the door he had entered through. From the darkness of the shadows in the room beyond, Viscount Tristian watched them go. Then he turned on his heel and hurried towards the front of the aircraft. There was a growing doubt in the back of his mind, and he was beginning to be seriously worried. Because if the feeling he was getting at the back of his head was real, well, he hoped that Bunko was right. Because he was pretty sure that if Bunko wasn't, he, Ellie, and the whole Blackguard Rebellion would be exceptionally lucky to see the end of the week. And just when you thought you were going to get some answers, that's where we're going to leave it. I know, it's frustrating, isn't it? Um, We'll be back to normal next week uh, with a proper Geeks at the Gates conversation, because I know how much you've been missing those. But do not worry, uh, Shift will be back the week after that, when you might start to get some answers. Why is Viscount Tristian so worried? What is it that Bunko can tell Ellie that will clear all of this up? 
Can you really build an airship that's a mile long? I mean, seriously, that's huge. What was it that the traitor Viscount Tristian did to betray the office? And why did he do that? Why couldn't George Mannering work out where he was when the office could? How does that help them? What is Tristian afraid of? Hmm. The answers to all of this, and probably more, along with some more questions, because, hey, it's no fun if you know everything, will be forthcoming in the next exciting, scintillating, gripping, and enthralling episode of Shift, to be found in two weeks' time, right here, on the Geeks at the Gates. Until we speak again, be kind to yourself, be kind to everyone else, and meet us back here at the Gates very soon.